0: Welcome to Scripture and Tradition. I'm Father Mitch Packel, and this is a program where we take a look at the Word of God in Sacred Scripture, but do so through the lens of the apostolic tradition, the tradition that comes to us from Christ to His apostles and was passed on through their disciples. Now, of course, we love having you be part of the show by adding your comments and questions. You can send us questions by email, uh, writing to Scripture and Tradition at ewtn.com, or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now, today we'll be talking about Jesus as the physician of our souls, and this is going to be in the context of our Lord's. Healing of a Leper, in the first chapter of the Gospel of St. Mark. Now, we are continuing to follow my book called Praying the Gospels, uh, Jesus' Miracles in Galilee. This is the second book I did on Praying the Gospels. And you can get this still, of course, at EWTNRC.com where it is item number 52885, 52885. And follow along with us as we go through these passages. Now, this is our third meditation on Mark chapter 1. And we're going to take a look at Mark chapter 1, verse 42. Uh, We're taking this bit by bit, because there's so much here. And I'd like to begin with something that, you know, I experience on a regular basis. Uh, As many of you know, I have faculties in the Maronite Rite. And in the Maronite Rite, there is a one-year cycle of readings. So oftentimes the Sundays, especially during the Uh, big liturgical seasons have names. And the second Sunday of Great Lent is known as the Sunday of the Leper because we always read this gospel about Jesus curing the leper. And there is a prayer in the liturgy for that day. It addresses Jesus who, quote, appeared in the world as a physician and granted the sick wholeness of body and soul. That a, was a very striking prayer to me because he comes to the world as a physician not only by healing the body, of the leper. But another prayer continues in that same Sunday, the Sunday of the leper uh, liturgy. And it asks the Lord, O Christ our God, the physician of souls and bodies, look upon us and have compassion, as you had compassion on the man with leprosy. Come to us, Cleanse us and make us whole. Now, this is something that is very worth taking a look at. Um, First of all, we have to recognize that today, very few people have the virus of leprosy. Very few people have Hansen's disease. There's still some. But, again, when it is diagnosed, uh, it's usually early, and there are some really tremendous medicines that fight the leprosy virus, and people get healed. Um, So we don't see too much of that, and that's a, a good thing. But there's something else that I think is very useful for us to consider. And that is, as we do in the Maronite liturgy during Lent, to see leprosy as something of a symbol of our sinfulness. That the comparison to leprosy is appropriate because sin distorts our human nature. Our human nature was created as good and God cherishes our human nature so much that He became flesh and dwelt among us and He uses various physical things for the sacraments because the Lord knows that we humans our body and soul, and as such we have this uh, sense of uh, being able to perceive the things of God through our bodies as well as through our mind. So this is, he cherishes humanity. But sin is a distortion of the human person. And that's a a key element. The way that leprosy distorts the physical body, sin can distort the body and the soul. So this is an attack on human dignity. It diminishes our inherent dignity. And sometimes sin is so pervasive that there are people who, even deny that human beings have an inherent dignity. And they attack that dignity. They don't believe in God. It's one of the problems with atheism. By not believing in God, they cannot believe that humans are made in the image and likeness of God. And that makes even on a more secular level the... American Declaration of Independence, difficult to accept. When it says something as fairly, you know, um, simple and general, that we are endowed by the Creator with unalienable rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Sin, oftentimes, especially when it denies God, also rejects that dignity and distorts it. And we can distort it from our own side, and others can try to distort it for us. So, this is where we need Christ. We need Christ to forgive our sins and cleanse the conscience and restore us to spiritual health. And this is how, one of the ways in which our Lord is healing. And by the way, in no way am I denying that our Lord can also heal us physically. I'm not saying that, I'm not re, uh, removing that in any way. But I am very alert to this spiritual component that happens in my own life. Now, we're, you know, I'm aware of how my sin is a distortion, of who I'm supposed to be, in God's eyes, and you know certainly uh, in the lives of other people. Now, let's take a look at how sin might be like leprosy. You know, I've mentioned in other programs that some sins take on more popularity at certain periods of history than other sins. And we have experienced in Western society a double revolution in the 1960s and later, a sexual revolution and a drug revolution. And this is very important. Let's take a look at the drug revolution because this is a way to see a deadly pattern in life. It is death-dealing to get drunk and to use drugs. Um, Of course, uh, drunkenness and drug abuse, including the use of marijuana, does physical damage to the body, destroys brain cells. Marijuana has a number of components, for instance, that are destructive. It's you're also putting a lot of smoke into your lungs, um, uh, but you know the, it's not brain cells, the liver. Um, there are other physical organisms that get affected by too much drinking and sometimes by uh, other drugs. Um, that, that happens, and it puts, and besides the physical damage to one's own body, it puts one at risk. For accidents. For instance, driving under the influence impairs one's judgment. And you can get in accidents that kill you or other people. It also deadens the soul. For instance, uh, heavy use of marijuana destroys a person's motivation. That's one of the the effects of heavy use. They They lose that sense of motivation. And drugs and alcohol can also destroy personal relationships. Ask the families of alcoholics and drug abusers. Uh, You you can't even talk to the person anymore. All you're doing is talking to the booze or to the drug. And this is a, a very serious thing. And now we see as the drug dealers are poisoning our people by adding fentanyl. They're selling fentanyl on you know, uh, various places, including the internet, calling it other drugs, but they're also mixing fentanyl in marijuana and uh, other uh, uh, drugs that are used. And people are dying. They don't even know that there's fentanyl in their marijuana. They didn't ask for it, but it gives it a little more strength. But the drug dealers are careless, and it's over 100,000 people a year are dying. This is a mass poisoning of our population through drugs. And so it's not necessarily the initial drug that kills, but sometimes what's going on. This is a good example of how it's a deadly process. Same thing with the sexual revolution. You know, there are a variety of things that it does to the physical body. Uh, you know, we see now that um, uh, promiscuity is, of course, tied into the transmission of sexually transmitted diseases. And many of them are quite deadly. Uh, Human papillomavirus turns into cancer, and a variety of other drugs. That's probably the most common uh, drug, or or, excuse me, the most common sexually transmitted disease. But uh, it's something like uh, 20 to 25 percent of the population is infected in general. And certain parts of the uh, population that are more promiscuous are more infected. So that's the physical side, but also it makes people unable to enter into authentic human relationships, that there, be, with promiscuity comes an inability to truly love on one other person. And uh, it, it leads to a superficiality and oftentimes an abuse. Uh, AND MOST OF THE SEXUAL ABUSE OF CHILDREN OCCURS IN FAMILIES WHERE THERE ARE PEOPLE LIVING TOGETHER WITHOUT MARRIAGE, WITHOUT COMMITMENT, AND ONE OF THEM IS NOT USUALLY THE FATHER OF THE CHILDREN. Um, THIS LEADS TO A VARIETY OF PROBLEMS FOR KIDS, AND IT PREVENTS PEOPLE FROM BECOMING MORE MATURE. Um, people become manipulative for sexual experience rather than love, so that lust and abuse of people is also spiritually destructive. So these are common patterns of sin in our contemporary world. Other times in history, other sins were more prominent. I don't, and I'm not saying that these are the only sins. Um, but they're frequently connected with much of the violence that we have, much of the poverty that we experience. Uh, women who are single mothers and their children are more poor, for instance, than married people. You know, there's a lack of stability in their world, and that it helps cause their poverty and a variety of other issues. Uh, These are comments of sin that distort human sexual relationships and human happiness, while at the same time drugs are seeking that happiness, and so is sex, but it gets distorted. And that's a spiritual, emotional, and physical leprosy. By isolating people from true love with one another and they also end up isolating themselves from God. And they they just are alone. And oftentimes without hope and without joy. They might have pleasure for a while. But take a look at people who are using uh, meth. They don't even have their teeth. It's, It's horrible, horribly sad. And, you know, this is something that our Lord wants to show us true love. He truly wants to love us and restore us to spiritual health. And we need to be prepared for the meaning of life. And that means facing the reality of our own death, the inevitability of our death is something we have to be alert to. And this is a very important thing. So, given these problems and many others, some of the anger in our society and some of the other things going on, we can look to Jesus and like the leper, we can approach Him and say, if you will, YOU CAN HEAL ME. IF YOU WILL, YOU CAN HEAL ME. THIS IS A VERY IMPORTANT REQUEST. AND WE CAN BE JUST AS POSITIVE IN FAITH. WE CAN HAVE CONFIDENCE IN JESUS CHRIST THAT HE IS MORE DESIROUS TO FORGIVE US OUR SINS Then we are to admit to them. We're oftentimes trying to justify ourselves. We try to excuse ourselves. And we ask our Lord to, you know, we we, we just accept us as we are instead of saying, Lord, my sin distorts me and my life and my relationships, my health, my society. And I'm sorry. And I trust you can forgive me and show me the way to spiritual and emotional and even physical wholeness. But I need you. I need you. And one of the things that we can do, I think, is pay attention to the way that sin becomes deadly in our lives. Pay attention to, and especially our own sins, more than sins of other people. And ask our Lord, if you will, you can heal me. This would be a great way to pray this text and make it our own. We're going to take a break. Come back and take a look at another part of the same passage of the healing of the leper. So please stay with us. Welcome back. We are continuing on with the story of Jesus healing the leper. We're taking a look now in this fourth meditation on that passage at Mark chapter 1, verse 43. Now, it says there, and Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. Now, the word at once, that, that translation actually makes it sound nicer. Um, it's a word I mentioned uh, last week where our Lord uses, and St. Mark throughout his gospel uses the word immediately a lot, Ephthus, or as some modern uh, people read, uh, Euthus. But um, th- this immediately. is kind of harsh. And he also sternly charged him. Um, now, again, uh, in, when you're translating from one language to another, uh, sometimes you have to use uh, a, a couple words, but it's Um This is one word in Greek. And it just has that sense of being uh, harshly told uh, or admonished sternly. It, It just implies that adverb sternly in there. Now, this is something that seems harsh. But because of that harshness, a number of fine scholars have compared this to an exorcism, the way that he admonished harshly the uh, various demons, so also here. Um, And again, it reminds some of us of casting demons out. Now, the reaction is not exactly to a demon is to the healing of a leper. But if you remember, when we first started to describe this leper, I mentioned that leprosy, Hansen's disease, had been brought into the Mediterranean world uh, in the late 300s B.C., Uh, sometime before Alexander the Great died, around 325. And uh, this is a a deadly disease that had no cure, no understanding of its cause. And they called lepers the walking dead. Remember when we talked about that? Lepers were considered the walking dead in those days because they were doomed. That's why it's not that they were mean. They were just dealing with the reality that you were already starting to decay. Your body was falling apart while you're still alive, and death is inevitable. Now, in this case, some of the harshness of this reality that, again, is compared to an exorcism may be better understood when we understand that in the Bible, death is God's enemy. Death is not God's friend. Death is not God's ally. He works with death and, of course, uses death. But this is something that is God's enemy. This is very important to understand. IN TERMS OF OUR MODERN WORLD ESPECIALLY. TAKE A LOOK AT THE BOOK OF WISDOM, CHAPTER 1, BEGINNING WITH VERSE 13 DOWN TO VERSE 16. IN WISDOM 113 IT SAYS, GOD DID NOT MAKE DEATH AND HE DOES NOT DELIGHT IN THE DEATH OF THE LIVING. THAT'S A GOOD LINE TO REMEMBER when you hear people say, well, why didn't God just sort of kill Hitler? You know, why didn't he have him, you know, shot or or gassed in World War I when he was a soldier? Then we never would have had World War II. Well, that's not necessarily true because World War II wasn't caused only by Adolf Hitler. It was also caused by the way that the allies took revenge on the German people at the end of World War I. But this is something to keep in mind. God does not delight in the death of the living, for He created all things that they might exist. And the generative forces of the world are wholesome. Think about that in terms of the way so much, so many billions of dollars are spent IN TRYING TO PREVENT HUMAN GENERATION WITH BIRTH CONTROL OF DIFFERENT KINDS AND ABORTION AND OTHER THINGS. PEOPLE TODAY SEE, NO, NO, HAVING CHILDREN IS THE PROBLEM IN THE WORLD. WAIT, BY THE END, I WON'T SEE IT, BUT BY THE END OF THIS CENTURY, YOUNG PEOPLE TODAY WHO ARE STILL ALIVE LATE IN THE CENTURY WILL SEE THAT THE POPULATION OF THE EARTH has declined radically, mark my words, and there's no destructive poison in them, and the dominion of Hades is not on earth, for righteousness is immortal. But ungodly men by their words indeed summoned death. Considering death a friend, they pined away, and they made a covenant with death because they are fit to belong to His party. It is ungodly men who make a covenant with death. Take a look at another passage in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25. For Christ must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So in the New Testament as well, death is called the enemy of Jesus Christ. And in, verse, in 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 55, IT SAYS, O DEATH, WHERE IS YOUR VICTORY? O DEATH, WHERE IS YOUR STING? THE STING OF DEATH IS SIN AND THE POWER OF SIN IS THE LAW, BUT THANKS BE TO GOD WHO GIVES US VICTORY THROUGH OUR LORD JESUS CHRIST. HIS DEATH AND RESURRECTION WAS the WAY TO DEFEAT DEATH, BUT IT'S STILL HIS ENEMIES. AND Christ CHRIST CAME TO EARTH IN ORDER TO DEFEAT DEATH, AS WELL AS DEFEAT THE UNCLEAN SPIRITS and bring the kingdom of God. Therefore, when He confronts the leprosy, it is the, uh, uh, which is a death that gradually overcomes the afflicted person, Jesus reacts with great vigor. He reacts act, very strongly against the deadliness of leprosy and even is angry at the walking death that would be killing this poor man. Now, consider our Lord's charge and the 20th century. I mentioned this a number of times over the years, but it's important for us to remember the 20th century, the modern times when airplane flight, the automobile, Movies, all these things come and make a technological society. Computers are invented. All these great things, scientific discoveries. The same 20th century ends up becoming the most violent century in the history of the world. The most violent century. The next closest would be the 13th century when the Mongols, with their wars, killed about 50 million people. That's huge. Tamerlane in the 14th century killed about 30 million people. It was horrible devastation. So, 50 million in the 13th under the Mongols and 30 million under Tamerlane, those are the two most violent periods. Until the 20th century. And in the 20th century, we see that it is 305 million people are killed in war, persecution, 40 million Christians are killed, and genocide. So it's not only Hitler killing about 10 million people, 6 million Jews and 4 million non-Jews, but far worse is Stalin and Lenin. With 61.9 million, according to the KGB, giving us those figures in 92. And China doesn't give us the figures, surprise, but it's in 75 to 90 million at least, maybe more. So this is a series of societies. Communism makes death its ally. National Socialism, the Nazis, made death its ally. We see people who are are concerned about global uh, climate change. They don't say global warming anymore. They change it to climate change. So no matter what happens, they still can use the issue. And they use abortion. And they use euthanasia. Partly because they know they can't afford to pay for everything that they promised to pay for. And so they use abortion. Hundreds of millions are aborted. The secular culture rejects God. and Instead, instead it makes an ally of God's enemy, death. And this is where we then bring in our own prayer. You know, we see, uh, I'm I'm concerned just as an American citizen, the uh, Internal Revenue Service has been uh, being allowed to hire 87,000 more people. On the hiring form, it says you have to be willing to use lethal force in order to take on this job. They're not looking for just accountants. That's in their job description. What kind of alliance with death are they willing to make? And why are there twice as many people in the IRS as there are in border control, the FBI, the Pentagon, and the State Department combined? We have to ask these questions and ask about our own involvement in these things. Am I willing to participate in something that could make me an agent of death in an unnecessary way. Same thing with, we've heard about police abuse, but also with drug abuse. People are willing to kill for that. There are lots of people who make alliances with death. What is my attitude? Will I be an ally of death, or will I turn to God? And do we send that invitation from death to become its ally? Do we send it away immediately with a harsh rebuke? And do we cling to Jesus Christ, who, as he said to Martha in uh, her hometown, I am the resurrection and the life. HE NEVER SAYS, I AM DEATH, I AM THE RESURRECTION AND THE LIFE. WHICH DO WE ally WITH, DEATH OR THE RESURRECTION AND THE LIFE? THIS IS KEY FOR US. ALL RIGHT, SO LET'S TAKE A LOOK AT THAT. AND um, NEXT WEEK WE'LL TAKE A LOOK A LITTLE BIT MORE AT uh, this, THIS PASSAGE. BUT... We'll stop there for now and take a look at some of your emails. Let me start off with an email from Nick in Frankfort, Illinois. It says, Father Mitch, I'm wondering why, at the time of consecration, the celebrant, the priest, as he recites the words of consecration, bows over, in a sense, bows into the host and also the cup as he does so. Nick from Frankfort. First of all, Nick, that gesture is prescribed for us priests in the Mass Book. If you uh, get a chance to take a look at a Missal, you'll see that there are rubrics. Um, that Those are written in red ink. Um, and that's what rubric means, or it comes from word for red. And uh, that... We're told to bow down. Why is that? So that we focus on this host, that as we pronounce the words, remember in the Roman Rite, right before the consecration, the priest extends his hands over the bread and wine. And then he says the words of Christ This is my body, this is the cup of my blood. And HAVING CALLED UPON THE HOLY SPIRIT AND SPEAKING THE WORDS OF JESUS CHRIST, IT'S THAT COMBINATION OF THE WORD OF GOD AND THE HOLY SPIRIT THAT RECREATES, IN A CERTAIN SENSE, THE BREAD INTO THE BODY OF CHRIST. IT'S NOT THAT CHRIST IS IN THE BREAD. THAT WOULD BE IMPRECISE AND INCORRECT. IT'S RATHER THAT THE BREAD BECOMES THE BODY OF CHRIST. AND THE SAME WITH THE the WINE. IT BECOMES THE BLOOD OF CHRIST. AND AS SUCH, THE PRIEST BENDS OVER TO FOCUS ON THE ACTION OF GOD'S WORD AND THE HOLY SPIRIT. AND A GOOD WAY TO ALSO UNDERSTAND THAT IS IN THE STORY OF CREATION IN GENESIS 1, THE HOLY SPIRIT hovers over the chaos and then God says, let there be light. It's that combination of the movement of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that brings creation. And here we are as priests standing in the person of Christ looking over this and letting the Holy Spirit hover over the bread and wine as we say the Word of God to transform it. We've got to be focused. Not looking around at the people and things like that. Focus on Christ present there. That's what's going on. Okay? All right. We have another email. This one is from Vince in Minnesota. It says, Holy oh, Father Mitch, a pro-abortionist stated that Numbers chapter 5 verses 11 to 31 give instructions on how to abort a baby OF AN UNFAITHFUL WIFE. CAN YOU EXPLAIN WHAT THESE PASSAGES ARE REALLY SAYING? I THINK THE PERSON IS MISINTERPRETING THESE PASSAGES. Um, WELL, NICK, uh, LET ME ASSURE YOU THAT WHOEVER SAID THAT TO YOU IS MISINTERPRETING THE PASSAGE. Uh, uh, IT'S NOT JUST YOUR INSTINCT. it is the reality. Now, what's going on here? Beginning in verse 11, of Numbers chapter 5, um, the Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, if a man's wife goes astray and acts unfaithfully against him, if a man lies with her carnally, having sexual relations with her, and so it's adultery. And it is hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected though she has defiled herself and there's no witness against her since she was not taken in the act. And if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, the husband, and he is jealous of the wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes and he's jealous of the wife though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. So the man is filled with jealousy. He suspects that she is having an affair with another man. And as a result, they go to the priest, and he, uh, what's required is that there is a sacrifice of barley, barley flour, okay, barley meal. And, uh, and it's called, the, without oil or incense. Most sacrifices, they put oil and incense because it is a cereal offering of jealousy, an, a serial offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. By the way, this is also a passage to keep in mind in understanding the Eucharist. Going back to that, the word remembrance here IS A TYPE OF SACRIFICE CONCERNED WITH GUILT AND SIN. THAT'S WHAT'S GOING, AND OUR LORD USES THAT WORD REMEMBRANCE AS A WAY TO DESCRIBE THE HOLY EUCHARIST AS A SACRIFICE FOR SIN. THIS IS THE, the PASSAGE THAT WE'VE TALKED ABOUT THAT A NUMBER OF TIMES IN THE PAST, BUT THIS IS THE PASSAGE. All right. And then he brings the woman near before the Lord and he takes holy water in an earthen vessel and some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. Now, by, what do they mean by holy water? They would, have, they would find look for a red heifer with all red hair and nothing but red hair, no white, no black, no nothing else, just red hair. And they found, it's very rare, to find an all, absolutely, completely red heifer. And they would take that heifer, slaughter her, and not eat the meat, but burn the whole heifer and keep the ashes. And they would take the ashes from that heifer, from a special container, and put it in water. Because this is a very special heifer, and that's how they made what the translation calls holy water. Okay, and if you killed the heifer that way, the ashes would normally last a good four or five hundred years. So they didn't need to do it often, because again, it's very rare. And so um, this. Uh, holy water, and then dust from the floor of the temple. Why would they bring that in? Because God is going to be the witness. The Lord God, remember Jeremiah chapter 17, the Lord God searches the mind and the heart. So also He would know what's inside her conscience. And the dust mixed into the holy water what they ashes in it, a little bit of ashes, this is something that would be there to test her. And then she would have to drink it, uh, unbind her hair, and place the cereal offering of remembrance in her hands, and then um, make sure she had to take an oath, and the oath was that she had not uh, lain with another man, and not become unclean uh, while you're under your husband's authority. And if you have gone astray, that it will make your thigh fall away and your body swell, that this water may bring this curse into your bowels and make your body swell and the thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Now let me ask you, Do you see any mention of a baby? Do you see any mention of a miscarriage? Is there anything like that in there? No. Whoever told you that this is about abortion is making that up. They want to find a way to justify abortion from the Bible when the Bible in this passage that they're using says nothing about abortion. And they want to ignore the condemnation by the prophet Amos when people did cut pregnant women open and kill them and their child. They want to ignore thou shalt not commit murder. They want to ignore that Passage in Jeremiah chapter one that while I was still in the womb, I knew you. They want to ignore how the Holy Spirit came upon John the Baptist inside the womb and stirred him inside his mother's womb when he's six months old. They want to ignore all that. And to go back to what we were saying a few minutes ago, They want to make an alliance with death. And we even see how they're desecrating churches today because they make an alliance with death. And when they ally themselves with death, they are willing to be like their father, Satan. Remember how the Lord said to the people, Your father is Satan because he was a liar and the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. These people are willing to lie about the Scripture. They're willing to tell lies about the Word of God to be able to promote death. And they want to ally themselves with Satan in killing the innocent. No, you don't have to worry about that. So... This is something that would uh, happen. Um, and it does say a little bit later on um, that uh, if she has taken that oath, uh, and her, th- uh, her thigh will, will pass away, and it will be cursed into your bowels, and the, uh, your thigh will fa- fa- fall away. But that's what it says there. So. This is something that is um, very, very important to pay attention to what the text says. All right, we'll take a break, come back with some more of your questions and comments, so please stay with us. Welcome back. And I just want to remind you, if you can, please be sure to join me for EWTN Live tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, when we will talk with Father Wojciech Gertig, a Dominican priest who is the theologian to the papal household. And he will talk about a new book that shows how Christ REVEALS THE FACE OF THE FATHER AND THE PATERNAL HEART OF LOVE FROM THE FATHER AND HOW WE SURRENDER OUR LIVES IN TRUSTFUL OFFERING TO GOD AND THAT OUR TRUST IN HIM BRINGS JOY TO THE FATHER AND FREES US OF OUR DISCOURAGEMENT. SO THIS is uh, SHOULD BE A GOOD CONVERSATION, FATHER. IF YOU REMEMBER, FATHER Gertig. Uh, from before. He's uh, just a wonderful, wonderful theologian, and he's got some great insights. So the book is very good, too. All right. Let's go back to some of your questions. Uh, We have another email, this time from Matthew in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, Father Mitch, I've been struggling with how other Christian faiths Fit into the Catholic Church. I choose to believe that the Catholic Church is one and that the Church is also the body of Christ. In the Catechism, paragraph 817, it says that many, through no fault of their own, are born outside the Church and cannot be held accountable for the sin of separation. Paragraph 818 says that many of them are also to be called... CHRISTIANS AND ARE OUR BROTHERS AND SISTERS. THEN 819 SAYS THAT MANY OF THESE COMMUNITIES, EVEN THOUGH THEY ARE OUTSIDE THE CONFINES OF THE CATHOLIC CHURCH, are STILL ARE USED FOR SALVATION. SO, CAN YOU EXPLAIN THE BODY OF CHRIST AND HOW THESE OTHER COMMUNITIES FIT TOGETHER WITH THE CATHOLIC CHURCH? MATTHEW IN TACOMA. WELL, MATTHEW, one of the places to understand that best would be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And there we see St. Paul (coughs) say that um, we are baptized uh, into the body of Christ. And it's a very important principle for us to... um, uh, see that by baptism we are baptized into the body of Christ, and um, let's see. And it says here, for just as the uh, body is one as many members, so also for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all are made to drink of one Spirit. So when these other communities. Baptize into the Blessed Trinity, they baptize the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then we can trust that they are baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. They belong to Christ and His one body. Now, there are different difficulties, and there's not full communion among us. But It's the Holy Spirit that baptizes them into the one body. Now, there are some exceptions. We don't accept baptism that's done by, uh, say, Jehovah's Witnesses because they reject the Blessed Trinity. And we don't accept Mormon baptism. Uh, Their baptism also has a different understanding of Christ and we also have to uh, say, rebaptize people who are baptized in the name of Jesus only. That, you know, because they often have a distorted view of the Trinity. They believe that Jesus is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in many of these churches. And then even in some of the more traditional churches where they have changed the formula for baptism. They are sometimes baptizing in the name of the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier, or some other formula. We need to rebaptize those people. Those would not be valid understandings of the Trinity. Um, we have to be alert to that. Uh, and we may have to do more rebaptizing of people from some, even of the mainline denominations. Uh, like some of the Presbyterians and others who have changed these baptismal formulae, um, but if a community baptizes in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're baptized by the power of the Holy Spirit into Jesus Christ, one body, and we recognize that authenticity. So, uh, but we also have to work for another level of union so that we can have true communion with them. All right, we need to stop there. I'm afraid we're out of time. May the Lord bless you all and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And this program and all of our other programs are brought to you by you. That's how our Lord inspired Mother Angelica to found this network. So we depend on you to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. Because we have a lot of bills as we show, you know, uh, masses and events from all around the world, as well as just general running of this. So thank you for your support, and please keep it up. Thank you.